Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, and welcome to the Fotations Life to Tape podcast. We are reading The South Sea Tales by Jack London. I did want to warn that there's going to be some strong language, and uh, there are stories of uh, the slave trade and everything in this story, so I wanted to give a heads up in case you wanted to skip this uh, to a more family-friendly uh, episode, but uh, this is going to be kind of an explicit episode, so I wanted to give you a chance to kind of brace yourself. So here we go. Now this is actually the last story in the book, but it is a longer one. So we might have to split this up into two parts. Uh, but the story is The Seed of McCoy. The Pyrenees, her iron sides pressed low in the water, by her cargo of wheat rolled sluggishly and made it easy for the man who was climbing aboard from out a tiny outrigged canoe. As his eyes came level with the rail so that he could see inboard, it seemed to him that he saw a dim, almost indiscriminable haze. It was more like an illusion, like a burning film that had spread abruptly over his eyes. He felt an inclination to brush it away, and the same instant he thought that he was growing old and that it was time to send to San Francisco for a pair of spectacles. As he came over the rail, he cast a glance aloft at the tall mast and next at the pump. There was not working. There seemed nothing the matter with the big ship, and he wondered why she had hoisted the signal of distress. He thought of his happy islanders and hoped it was not disease. Perhaps the ship was short of water or provisions. He shook hands with the captain, whose gaunt face and careworn eyes made no secret of the trouble. Whatever it was, at the same moment, the newcomer was aware of a faint, indefinable smell. It seemed like that of burnt bread, but different. He glanced curiously about him. Twenty feet away, a weary-faced sailor was chalking the deck. His eyes lingered on the main. He suddenly arised from under his hand a faint spiral of haze that curled and twisted and was gone. By now he had reached the deck. His bare feet were pervaded by a dull warmth that quickly penetrated the thick calluses. He knew now that the nature of the ship's distress. His eyes rolled swiftly forward. There were a full crew of weary-faced sailors regarded him eagerly. The glance from his liquid brown eyes swept over them like a benediction, soothing them, wrapping them about as in the mantle of a great peace. How long has she been afire, Captain? He asked in a voice so gentle and unperturbed that it was the cooling of a dove. At first the captain felt the peace and content of it, stealing in upon him. Then the consciousness of all that he had gone through and was going through smote him, and he was resentful. By the right did this ragged beachmonger in Dungree's trousers a cotton shirt suggest such a thing as peace and content to him as his overwrought, exhausted soul. The captain did not reason. 
this, it was the unconscious process of emotion that caused his resentment. Fifteen days, he answered shortly. Who are you? My name is McCoy, came the answer in tones that breathed tenderness and compassion. I mean, are you the pilot? McCoy passed the benediction of his gaze over the tall, heavy-shouldered man with the haggard, unshaven face who had joined the captain. I am as much pilot as anybody, was McCoy's answer. We are all pilots here, Captain, and I know every inch of these waters. But the captain was impatient. What I want is someone of authority. I can talk with them and blame quick. Then I'll do just as well. Again, the insidious suggestion of peace and his ship a raging furnace beneath his feet. The captain's eyebrow lifted impatiently and nervously, and his fist clenched as if he were about to strike a blow with it. Who in hell are you? he demanded. I am the chief magistrate, was the reply in a voice that was still the softest and gentlest imaginable. The tall, heavy-shouldered man broke out in a harsh laugh that was partly amusement, but mostly hysterical. Both he and the captain regarded McCoy with incredulity and amazement that his barefooted beach bomber could possess such a high-sounding dignity was inconceivable. His cotton-shirt unbuttoned exposed a grizzled chest and the fact that there was no shirt underneath. A worn straw hat failed to hide the ragged gray hair. Halfway down in his chest descended an untrimmed particular bird beard in a slop shop two shillings would have outfitted him completely as he stood before them. Any relation to the McCoy of the bounty? The captain asked. He was my great-grandfather. Oh, the captain said, then bethought himself. My name is Davenport, and this is my first name, Mr. Kong. They shook hands. And now to business, the captain spoke quickly. The urgency of the great haste pressing his speech were been on fire for two weeks, and she's ready to break all hell loose at any moment. That's why I held for... Pitcairn. I want to beat her or to scuttle her and save the hole. Then you made a mistake, Captain, said McCoy. You should have slacked away for Mangreva. There's a beautiful beach there in a lagoon where the water is like a mill pond. But we're here, aren't we? The first mate demanded. That's the point. We're here, and we've got to do something. McCoy shook his head kindly. You can do nothing here. There is no beach. There isn't even anchorage. Gammon, said the mate. Gammon, he repeated loudly, and as the captain sighed him to more soft, to be more soft-spoken, you can't tell me that sort of stuff. Where did they keep your boats? Hey, your schooner, or your cutter, or whatever you have. Hey, answer me that. McCoy smiled as gently as he spoke. His smile was a careless and an embrace that surrounded the tired mate and sought to draw him into the quietude and the rest of McCoy's tranquil soul. We have no schooner or cutter, he replied, and we carry our canoes to the top of the cliff. You've got to show me, snorted the mate, how you get around the other islands. Tell me that. We don't get around. As governor of Pitcairn, I sometimes go... When I was younger, I was away a great deal, sometimes on the trading schooners, but mostly on the missionary brigs. But she's gone now, and we depend on passing vessels. Sometimes we have 
Sometimes we have had as high as six calls in one year. At other times, even longer ones have gone without one passing ship. Yours is the first in seven months. And you mean to tell me the mate began? But Captain Davenport interfered. Enough of this. We're losing time. What is to be done, Mr. McCoy? The old man turned his brown eyes, sweet as a woman's shoreward, and both captain and mate followed his gaze around from the lonely rock of the Pitarin to the crew clustering forward and waiting anxiously for the announcement of a decision. McCoy did not hurry. He thought smoothly and slowly, step by step, and the certitude of his mind was never vexed or outraged by life. The wind is lately now, he said finally. There is a heavy current setting to the westward. That was... That's what made us fetch the lure, the captain interrupted, desiring to vindicate his steamship. Yes, that is what fetched you leeward, McCoy went on. Well, you can't work up against the current today, and if you did, there'd be no beach. Your ship will be a total loss. He paused, and the captain's mate looked in despair at each other. But I will tell you what to do. The breeze will freshen tonight around midnight. See those tails of the clouds? In the thickness to windward, beyond the point there, there shall come from, and on the south, southeast, hard, it is three hundred miles to Mangrova, square away for it. There is a beautiful bed for your ship there. The mate shook his head. Come into the cabin, and we'll look at the charts, said the captain. McCoy found a stiffening, poisonous atmosphere in the pent cabin. Stray wafers of invisible gases bit his eyes and made them sting. The deck was hotter, almost unbearably hot, to his bare feet. The sweat poured out of his body. He looked almost as apprehensive about him. The malignant internal heat was astounding, and it was a marvel that the cabin did not burst into flames. He had a feeling as if of being in a huge bake oven where the heat might at any moment increase tremendously and swivel him, shrivel him up like a blade of grass. As he lifted one foot and rubbed the hot sole against the leg of his trousers, the mate laughed in a savage, snarling fashion. An anteroom of hell, he said. Hell herself is right down there under your feet. It is hot, McCoy cried involuntary, mopping his face with a bandana handkerchief. Here is Mangrovius, the captain said, bending over the table and pointing to a black speck in the midst of the white blankness of the chart. And here in between is another island. Why not run for that? McCoy did not look at the chart. That's Crescent Island, he answered. It is uninhabited, and it is the only two or three feet above water. Lagoon, but no entrance. No, Mangrovia is the nearest place for your purpose. Mangrovia it is, then, said Captain Davenport, interrupting the mate's growling objection. Call the crew aft, Mr. Kong. The sailors obeyed, shuffling wearily along the deck and painfully endeavoring to make haste. Exhaustion was evident in every moment. The cook came out of his galley to hear. The captain boy hung about near him. The ca when Captain Davenport had explained the situation and announced his intentions of running for Mangrovia, an uproar broke out. Against a background of thorny rumbling arose an inarticulate cries of rage, with here and there a distant curse or word or phrase. A shrill, cocky voice 
sword and dominated for a moment, crying gark. After been him for fifteen days, and now he wants to sail this floating sea, floating to sea again. The captain could not control them, but McCoy's gentle presence seemed to rebuke and calm them, and muttering and cursing died away, until the full crew, save here and there, an anxious face directing the captain, yearned dumbly toward the green-clad peaks and beetling coasts of Picturin. Soft as the spring's cipher was the voice of McCoy. Captain, I thought I heard some of them say they were starving. Aye, was the answer, and so we are. I've had sea biscuits and a spoonful of salmon in the last two days. We're on whack. You see, we have discovered the fire, and we battened down immediately to suffocate the fire. Then we found how little food there was in the pantry. But it was too late. We didn't dare break out the Lazarus, hungry. I'm just as hungry as they are. He spoke to the men again, and again the throat rumbling and cursing arose. Their faces convulsed, and animal like with animal like rage, the second and third mates had joined the captain, standing behind him at the break of the poop. Their faces were set and expressionless. They seemed bored more than anything, but this mutiny of the crew. Captain Davenport glanced questioningly at his mate, and that person merely shrugged his shoulders in a token of his helplessness. You see, the captain said to McCoy, you can't compel sailors to leave the safe land and go to sea on a burning vessel. She has been their floating coffin for over two weeks now. They've worked out and starved out, and they've got enough of her. We'll beat up for Picarin. But the winds was light, and the Pekingese bottom was foul, and she could not beat up against the strong westerly current. At the end of two hours she had lost three miles. The sailors worked eagerly, as if by main stretch they could compel the Pyrenees against the adverse elements. But steadily port track and starboard track, she staggered off to the westward. The captain paced restlessly up and down, pausing occasionally to serve the vagrant smoke whiffs and to trace them back to the proportions of the deck from which they sprang. The carpenter was eagerly and constantly attempting to locate such places, and when succeeded in chalking them in tighter and tighter. Well, what do you think? The captain finally asked McCoy, who was watching the carpenter with all a child's interest and curiosity in his eyes. McCoy looked shoreward, where the land was disappearing in a thicket haze. I think it would be better to square away for, Mangri for Mangrova with that breeze that is coming. You'll be there in tomorrow evening, but what if the fire breaks out? It is liable to do at any moment. Have your boats ready in the falls. The same breeze will carry your boats to Mangrovia if the ship burns out from under. Captain Davenport debated for a moment, and then McCoy heard the question that he had not wanted to hear, but which he knew was surely coming. I have no chart of Mangrovia on the general chart. It is only a fly speck. I would not know where to look for the entrance into the lagoon. Will you come along to pilot her in for me? McCoy's serenity was unbroken. Yes, Captain, he said with the same quiet unconcern with which he would have accepted an invitation to dinner. I will go to you to Mangrovia. Again, the crew was called aft, and the captain spoke to them for the break of the poop. 
We've tried to work her up, and you see how we've lost ground. She's setting off in two-knot current. This gentleman, the Honorable McCoy, Chief Magistrate and Governor of Pictard Island, he will come along with us to Mangoria. So you see the situation is no longer dangerous. He would not make such an offer if he thought he was going to lose his life. Besides, whatever risk there is, if he, of his own free will, come aboard and take it, we can do no less. What do you say for Mangravia? This time there was no uproar. McCoy's presence, the certainty and calm that which radiated from him had had its effect. They conferred with one another in low voices. There was little urging. They were virtually unanimous, and they shoved the cockery out as their spokesman. That worthy was overwhelmed with consciousness of the heroism of himself and his mates, and with flashing eyes he cried, By God, we will, we will. The captain mumbled its assent and started forward. One moment, Captain McCoy said, as the other was turning to give orders to the mate, I must go ashore first. Mr. Kong was thunderstruck, starting at McCoy as if he were a madman. Go ashore, the captain cried. What for? It will take three hours for you to get there in your canoe. McCoy measured the distance of the land away and nodded. Yes, it's six hours now. I won't be ashore till nine. The people cannot be assembled earlier than ten. As the breeze freshens up tonight, you can begin your work up against it, and picking me up at daylight tomorrow morning. In the name of reason and common sense, the captain burst forth, what do you want to assemble the people for? Don't you realize that my ship is burning beneath me? McCoy was placid as the summer era, and the others angered produced not the slightest ripple upon it. Yes, Captain, he cooed in a dove-like voice. I do realize that your ship is burning. That is why I am going with you to Mangrovia. But I must get permission to go with you. It is our custom, and it is important matter, that the governor leaves the island. The people's interests are at stake, and so they have to have a right to vote, their permission or refusal. But they will give it. I know that. Are you sure? Quite sure. And if you know they will give it, why bother with getting it? I think the delay a whole night? It is our custom, was the imperturbably reply. Also, I am the governor, and I must make arrangements for the conduct of my island during my absence. But it is only a twenty-four-hour run to Mangrovia, the captain objected. Suppose it took you six times that long to return to Windward. That would bring you back by the end of a week. McCoy smiled his large, benevolent smile. Every few vessels comes to Pictora, and when they do, they are usually from San Francisco or from the Horn. I shall be fortunate if I get back in six months. I may be away a year, and I may have to go to San Francisco in order to find a vessel that will bring me back. My father once left Picaran to be gone three months, and two years passed before he could get back. Then, too, you are short of food. If you have to take the, to the boats, and the weather comes up bad, you may be days in reaching land. I can bring off two canoe loads of food in the morning. Dry bananas will be best. As the breeze freshens, you will beat up against it. The nearer you are, the bigger the loads I can bring off. Goodbye. He held out his hand, and the captain shook it, and was reluctant to let go. He seemed to cling to it as a drowning sailor clings to life, to a life buoy. How do I know you will come back in the morning, he asked. 
Yes, that is it, cried the mate. How do we know but what he's skinning out to save his own hide? McCoy did not speak. He looked at them sweetly and benignly, as and it seemed to them that they received a message from his tremendous certainty of soul. The captain released his hand, and with a last sweeping glance that embraced the crew with its benediction, McCoy went over the rail and descended into his canoe. The wind freshened, and the peonies, despite the foulness of her bottom, one half a dozen miles away from the westerly current. At daylight, the Piccany three miles to windward, Captain Davenport made out two canoes coming off to him. Again, McCoy clambered up the side and dropped over the rail to a hot deck. He was followed by many packages of dry bananas, each packing wrapped in dry leaves. Now, Captain, he said, swing the yard and drive for dear life. You see, I am no navigator, he explained a few minutes later, as he stood by the captain aft, and later, with a gaze wandering from aloft to overside, estimated the Pyrenees speed. You must fetch her to Mangrovia, where you have picked up the land. Then I will pilot her in. What do you think she is making? Eleven, Captain Davenport answered, with a final glance at the water rushing past. Eleven, let me see. As she keeps up that gate, we'll, make, we'll sight Mangrovia between eight and nine o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll have her on the beach by ten, or by eleven at least, and then your troubles will be over. It almost seemed to the captain that the blissful moment had already arrived. Such was the persuasive convincingness of McCoy. Captain Davenport had been under the fearful strain of navigating his burning ship for over two weeks, and he was beginning to feel that he had had enough. The heavier flaw of wind struck the back of his neck and whisked by his ears. He measured the weight of it and looked quite quietly overside. The wind is making all the time, he announced. The old girl is doing nearly twelve, then eleven right now. If this keeps up, we'll be shortening down tonight. All day the Pyrenees carrying her load of living fire torn across the foaming sea. By nightfall the royal's night sails were in, and she flew on into the darkness with great crested seas roaring after her. The auspicious wind had had its effect, and fore and aft a visible brightness was apparent. The second dog watched some careless soul started a song, and by eight bells the whole crew was singing. Captain Davenport had his blankets brought up and spread on top of the house. I've forgotten what sleep is, Explained he explained to McCoy. I'm all in, but give me a call any time you think is necessary. At three in the morning, he was aroused by a gentle tugging at his arm. He sat up quickly, bracing himself against the skylight. Stupid yet, stupid yet from his heavy sleep, the wind was thrumming and it was a war song in the ringing, and a wild sea was buffering the Pyrenees. Amidship, she was wallowing her first rail under, and then the other, flooding the waste more often than not. McCoy was shouting something he could not hear. He reached out and clutched the other by the shoulder, and drew him so close to his own that so and drew him so that his own ear was close to the other's lips. It's three o'clock, came McCoy's voice, still retaining its dove-like quantity, but curiously muffled as if from a long way off. 
We've run 250. Crescent Island is only 30 miles away, somewhere there dead ahead, but no lights on it. If we keep running, we'll pile up and lose ourselves as well as the ship. What do you think? Heave to. Yes, heave till daylight. It only puts us back four hours. So Pyrenees, with her cargo of fire, was hove to, biting the teeth of the gale, fighting and smashing the pounding sea. She was a shell filled with conflagration, and on the outside of the shell, clinging precariously the little moats of men, by pole and hole, she helped her in the battle. It is most unusual, this gale, McCoy told the captain in the lee of the cabin. By right, there should be no gale at this time of year, but everything about the weather had been unusual. There had been a stoppage of the trade, and now it's howling right out of the trade quarters. He waved his hands into the darkness, as if his vision could dimly penetrate the hundreds of miles. It is off to the westward. There is something big making of there, somewhere, a hurricane or something. We're lucky to be so far eastward, but this is only a little blow, he added. It can't last, I can tell you that much. By daylight, the gale had ceased down to normal. But daylight revealed a new danger. It had come on thick. The sea was covered by fog, or rather by a pearly mist that was fog-like in density, and only so far it obstructed vision. But that was no more than a film on the sea, for the sun shot it through and filled it with a glowing radiance. The deck of the Pyrenees made was making more smoke than on the preceding day, and the cheerfulness of officers and crew had vanished. In the loo of the galley, the cabin boy could be heard whimpering. It was his first voyage, and fear of death was at his heart. The captain wandered about like a lost soul, nervously chewing his mustache, scowling and unable to make his mind what to do. What do you think, he asked, pausing by the side of McCoy, who was making breakfast of fried bananas, and a mug of water. McCoy finished the last banana, draining the mug, and looked slowly around. His eyes were a smile of tenderness, and he said, Well, Captain, we might as well drive as burn. Your deck is not going to hold out forever. They are hotter, it, they are hotter this morning. You haven't a pair of shoes I can wear. It's getting uncomfortable for my bare feet. The Pyrenees shipped too heavy sea as she was swung off, and put once more before it, and first mate expressed a desire to have all the water down in the hold, if only it could be introduced without taking off the hatches. McCoy ducked his head into a pinnacle and watched the course set. I'll hold her some more, Captain, he said, shall making a drift when we hove to. I've set it to a point higher already, was the answer. Isn't that enough? I'd make it two points, Captain, for a bit of blow kicked that westerly current ahead faster than you imagine. Captain Davenport promised on point and a half, and then went aloft, compared by McCoy, the first mate, to keep lookout for land. Sail had been made so that the Pyrenees was doing ten knots. The following sea was dying down rapidly. There was no break in the pearly fog, and by ten o'clock Captain Davenport was growing nervous. All hands were at their station, ready at the first warning of the land ahead.
to spring like fiends to the task of bringing the Pyrenees up on the wind, that land ahead, the surf-washed outer reef, would be perilously close when it revealed itself in such a fog. Another hour passed, and three watchers aloft started intently into the pearly radiance. What if we miss Mandro Mangrova? Captain Davenport asked abruptly. McCoy, without shifting his gaze, answered softly, Why let her drive, Captain? That is all we can do. All the Promoteus are before us. We drive for a thousand miles through reef and a toil. We are bound to fetch up somewhere. Then drive it is, Captain Davenport evidenced his intentions in descending to the deck. We've missed Managrovia. God knows where land is. I wish I'd held up her up after the... I wish I'd held her up that other half-point, he confessed a moment later. This cursed current plays the devil with our navigator. The old navigator called Promotus the dangerous archipelago, McCoy said, and when they regained the poop, this very current was partially responsible for that name. I was talking with the sh sailor chap in Sydney once, said McCong, Mr. Kong. He'd been trading in the Pomodius. He told me insurance was 18%. Is that right? McCoy smiled and nodded. Except they don't insure, he explained. The owners write off 20% of the cost of their schooners each year. My God, Captain Davenport groaned. That makes the life of a schooner only five years. He shook his head, sadly murmuring, Bad waters, bad waters. Again they went into the captain and consult the big general chart, but the poisonous vapors drove them coughing and gasping on deck. Here is the Morehout Island, Davenport pointed out on the chart which he had spread on the house. It can't be more than a hundred miles to leeward. A hundred then McCoy shook his head, doubtful, and it might be done, but it is very difficult. I might beach her, and then again I might put her on the reef. A bad place, a very bad bad place. Well, they take the chance, was Captain Davenport's decision, and set her about working out the course. Sail was shortened early in the afternoon to avoid running past the night, and in the second dog watch the crew manifested its regained cheerfulness. Land was so very near, and the trouble would be over in the morning. But morning broke clear, and the blast blazing tropic sun, the southeast trade had swung round to the eastward and was driving the Pyrenees through the water at an eight-knot clip. Captain Davenport worked up his dead reckoning, allowing generously for drift, and accounted Morout Island to be not more than ten miles off. The Pyrenees sailed the ten miles, she sailed ten miles more, and the lookouts and three mastheads saw naught but the naked sun-washed sea. But the land is there, I tell you, Captain Davenport shouted to them from the poop. McCoy smiled soothingly, but the captain glared about him like a madman, fetched his sextant, and took a chronometer sight. I knew I was right, he almost shouted when he had worked up to observation. 2155 south, 136 2 west. There you are, we're eight miles to windward yet. What do you make it out, Mr. Nkong? The first mate glanced at his own figures and said in a low voice, 2155, all right, 
but my longitude's 136.48. That puts us considerably leeward. But Captain Davenport ignored his figures with so contemptuous a silence as to make Mr. Crung grit his teeth and curse savagely under his breath. Keep her off, the captain ordered the man and the wheel three points steady there as she goes. Then he returned to his figures and worked them over. The sweat poured from his face. He chewed his mustache, his lips, and his pencil, staring at the figures as the man might a ghost. Suddenly, with a fist, fierce muscular outburst, he crumpled the scribbled paper in his fist and crushed it under his foot. Mr. Gong grinned vindictively and turned away, while Captain Davenport leaned against the cabin for half an hour and spoke no words, contenting himself with a gaze leader with an expression of musing hopelessness on his face. Mr. McCoy, he broke silence abruptly. The chart indicates a group of islands, but not how many off there to the northern and northwestward, about forty miles. The Achilles Islands, what about them? There are four, all low, McCoy answered. First to the southeast is Manture. No people, no entrance to the lagoon. Then comes Tangarua. There is about a dozen people there, but they may all be gone now. Anyway, there's no entrance for a ship, only a boat entrance with a fathom of water. Vangoa and Terrorero are the other two. No entrance, no people, very low. There is no bed for the Pyrenees in that group. She would be a total wreck. Listen to that, Captain Davenport was frantic. No people, no entrances. What the devil are islands good for? Well, then he barked suddenly, like an excited terrier. The chart gives us a whole mess of islands off to the northwest. What about them? What ab One has an entrance where I can lay my ship. McCoy calmly considered... He did not refer to the chart. All the islands, reefs, shores, lagoons, entrances, and distances were marked on the chart of his memory. He knew them as the city dwellers know his building streets and alleys, Papakena and Vanavera are off there to the westward, or the west-northwestward, a hundred miles and a bit more, he said, one is uninhabited, and I heard that the people on the other had gone off to Candemus Island. Anyway, neighbors' lagoons has an entrance. Alhuni is another hundred miles on to the northeast. No entrance, no people. Well, forty miles beyond them are two islands, Captain Davenport queried, raising his head from the chart. McCoy shook his head. Peros and Manhugai. No entrance, no people. Neither Nigeros is forty miles beyond them. In turn, and that has no people or no entrance. But there is Heo Island. It's just a place. The lagoon is thirty miles long and five miles wide. There are plenty of people. You can usually find water. And any ship in the world can go through the entrance. He ceased and gazed solicitously at Captain Davenport, who, bending over the chart, with a pair of dividers in hand, just emitted a low groan. Is there any lagoon with an entrance anywhere nearer than Halo Island? He asked. No, Captain, that is the nearest. Well, it's 340 miles, Captain Davenport was speaking very slowly with decision. I won't risk the responsibility of all these lives. I'll wreck her on Acton, and she'll be a good ship, too. 
he added regretfully after altering the course, this time making more allowance than ever for the westwardly current. A half hour later, the sky was overcast, and the southeast trade still held, but the ocean was a checkerboard of squalls. We'll be there by one o'clock, Captain Davenport announced confidently. By two o'clock on the outside, McCoy, you put her ashore on the one where the people are. The sun did not appear again, nor at one o'clock was there any land to be seen. Captain Davenport looked eastern, looked astern at the Pyrenees canteen wake. Good Lord, he cried, an easterly current, look at that. Mr. Kong was incredulous. McCoy was non-committal, though he said that the Primitus was no reason why it should not be an easterly current. A few months later, a squall robbed the Pyrenees temporarily of all her wind, and she was left rolling heavily in the trough. Where's that deep lead? Over with it, you there. Captain Davenport held the lead line and watched it sag off to the northeast. There, look at that. Take hold of it for yourself. McCoy had the mate tried McCoy and the mate tried it and felt the line thumbling and vibrating savagely to the grip of the tidal stream. A four-knot current, Mr. Kong, an easterly current instead of westerly, the Captain Davenport glaring accusingly at McCoy, as if to cast the blame upon him. That is one of the reasons, Captain, for insurance being 18% in these waters, McCoy answered cheerfully. You can never tell. The currents are always changing. There was a man who wrote books. I forget his name. In a yacht casco, he missed a cora by thirty miles and fetched Tiki, all because the shift currents. You are up to windward now, and you better keep off a few points. But how much has the current set me? The captain demanded irritably. How am I to know how much to keep off? I don't know, Captain McCoy. Captain McCoy said with a gentleness. The wind returned, and the Pyrenees, her deck, smoking and shimmering in the bright of gray light, ran off dead and leeward. Then she worked back, port tack and starboard tack, crisscrossing her track, combining the sea for the adjacent, adjacent islands with the masthead outlooks, failed to sight. Captain Davenport was beside himself. His rage took the form of a sullen silence, and he spent the afternoon in pacing the poop or leaning against the weathered shrouds. At night, without even consulting McCoy, he squared away and headed into the northwest, Mr. Kong suspiciously consulting the charts and binnacle, and McCoy openly and innocently consulting the binnacle, knew that they were running for Halo Island. By midnight, the squall ceased, and the star came out, and Captain Davenport was cheered by the promise of a clear day. Okay, an observation in the morning, he told McCoy, though what my altitude is a puzzle, what my latitude is is a puzzle, but I'll use this summer's method and settle that. Do you know the summer line? And thereupon he explained in detail to McCoy. The day proved clear, and the trade blew steady out for the east, and the Pyrenees just as steady logged her nine knots. Both the captain and mate worked out the position on the summer line and agreed at noon and agreed again and verified the morning sight by the noon sights. Another twenty-four hours and we'll be there, Captain Davenport assured McCoy. 
It's a miracle the way the old girl's deck is holding out. But they can't last. They can't last. Look at them. Smoke more and more every day. Yet it was a tight deck to begin with. A fresh chucked in Frisco. I was surprised when the fire first broke out and we battered down. Look at that. He broke off to gaze and dropped his jaw at spiral of smoke that coiled and twisted in a lee of mist and mass twenty feet above the deck. Now how did that get there? He demanded indignationly. Beneath it was no smoke crawling up from the deck, sheltered from the wind by the mast, by some freak it took form visible at height. It writhed away from the mast, and for the moment overhung the captain, like something threatening portion. The next moment the wind whisked away, and the captain's jaw returned to place. As I was saying, when we first battened down, I was surprised. It was a tight deck, yet it leaked smoke, like a sieve, and we cocked and cocked ever since. But there was, there must be a tremendous pressure beneath to drive so much smoke through. And that afternoon, the sky became overcast again, and squally drizzled weather set in. The wind shifted back and forth beneath the southeast and northeast, and at midnight, the Pyrenees was caught aback by a sharp squall from the northwest from which point the wind continued to blow intermittently. We won't make it to Hau until ten or eleven, Captain Davenport complained at seven in the morning, when the fleeting promise of the sun had been erased by a hazy cloud massing in the eastern sky, and the next moment he was plaintively demanding, and what are the currents doing? Lookouts at the mashhead could report no land, and the day passed in drizzled calms and violent squalls. By nightfall, a heavy sea began to make for the west. The barometer had fallen to 29.50, and there was no wind, and still the ominous sea continued to increase. Soon the Pyrenees was rolling madly in one huge wave that marched an unending procession from out of the darkness of the west. Sail was shortened as far fast as both watched could work, and the tired crew had finished its grumbling and complaining voices, particularly animal-like, menacing could be heard in the darkness. Once the starboard watch was called aft to lash down and make a cure, and the men openly advertised their sullenness and unwillingness, every slow movement was like a protest and threat. The atmosphere was moist and sticky like mulage, and in the absence of wind, all hands seemed to paint and grasp for air. The sweat stood out on the faces and bare arms, and Captain Davenport for one eye, his face more gaunt and careworn than ever, and his eyes troubled and staring, was oppressed by the feeling of impending calamity. We're going to take a break here. The next episode will continue uh, this story. I want to thank everyone for coming out. Uh, to this Flotations Life to Tape um, podcast episode. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Flotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit flotationsdonation.com where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below.
Thank you. Bye-bye.